Good morning, gentlemen. It's getting darker out there every, every morning. We need our little time change coming up here soon. Uh, if you're afraid of the dark, you might be disinclined to come to Amen Bible Study. Guys, uh, last time we, we looked at uh, a real disaster in Israel, and it was a disaster of very poor religion. That was the worst thing of all. It was one thing that their nation was attacked. It was another thing that their religious reaction was so disastrous. We saw how, how tragic it is when we take the things of God and we make them icons or uh, we make them good luck charms and try to use them to get our way in this world. And uh, by the time we ended our study last week, Israel had been terribly defeated by their nemesis, the Philistines. They had tried to manipulate God by just taking the ark out without seeking God. And they took Hophni and Phinehas with them. And they got defeated worse than ever before, lost 30,000 Israelites in battle. They come back completely chastened. But then we saw that God was at work, even amidst their disobedience and their corruption. He removes Hophni and Phinehas. He brings to a close Eli's 98-year career as priest. And he also judges the false god, Dagon, whose image could not even stand in the presence of the ark. And so the, uh, the Philistines want to get rid of the ark, so they put it on a cart, which is what Philistines do, because any Israelite would know you don't put it on a cart, although we'll see in 2 Samuel 6, that's exactly what they do, and God judges them again. But the Philistines put it on an ark. The Israelites knew to put it on their shoulders with the, with the poles and to cover the ark completely. But the Philistines do it their way, and two cows, without instruction take it right over the hill and down to Beth Shemesh. And then when it gets to Beth Shemesh, everybody's gawking at the ark, which they knew better than to do because this was a city of the Levites who, had, who were to be trained and know better. Seventy of them are slain. And basically, at that point, they say, can anybody get this ark out of here? And so they get the, the ark even away from Israelites who don't want to be around the ark of God. And at the close of our lesson, you'll see at the end of 7, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So everybody's really sad. Everybody's really depressed uh, because the ark now has gone to Kiriath-Jerim and uh, there's no sense of God being with them. There's no real sense of true religious life. Now, what we want to see in our text this morning is that God has a solution for this. Uh, basically, everybody here has their favorite substitute religion. If you've grown up in the church, your substitute religion is to take the things of God that really are of His and try to use them as good luck charms to get life to go your way. And you learn enough to pray to at least ask that your team will win uh, or, or your, your kids will graduate or something. You learn how to pray at least to that degree. And then you find it really is not working for you in the long run. And the problem is that most men don't know how to recover 
from disasters, religious disasters, financial disasters, moral disasters. They have no idea how to recover. And as as I've been able to interact with several religious groups around the world, I found that basically none of them have a way to recover. I remember, uh, uh, I mean, the only way they have to recover is either to lower uh, the standards of God or to raise the perceived performance of human beings to try to get these two together. So you either have to lower God's holiness or you have to uh, elevate man in his sinful state. And, and both of those are, lead to disaster. And that's the way most religions try to work. They, the religions that try to work by keeping the rules, which is every religion except for gospel Christian religion. Every religion tries to get men to do what they're supposed to do, meet the approval of God, pass the test, and God, God will approve you. And some of them are particularly dark. I remember uh, Ron Sadlow and I were in Cambodia on an occasion. We were evangelizing a Buddhist monk. And we just simply asked him, we said, uh, what happens if you have bad karma? I mean, you do something really bad in this life, you get bad karma. What do you do with that? And his answer, nothing. There's, there's basically no way out of bad karma. Folks, if I were a Buddhist, uh, I'd have shot myself a long time ago. I was amazed when Tiger Woods got into his problems. He, his response was, I need to be a better Buddhist. And I was thinking, well, then you shoot yourself. I mean... A Buddhist realizes there's no way out of this. After you do something like what he did, there's no solution. Bad karma is yours for the rest of your life. So, you know, all these tournaments he's losing is badly fulfill, is basically fulfillment of, of good Buddhism. You got bad karma, you, you don't win tournaments. Uh, I mean, but I'm telling you what, guys, I, I, I know me well enough. And because I know me well enough, I think I know you well enough to know you, you need a solution to bad karma. <laughs> you you got to you got to have a, an answer to your own distress and a, particularly your own deep sinfulness. And I'll tell you, that's the reason I'm a Christian. Uh, first of all, it's true. That's the reason I'm a Christian. But secondly, it's, it's gracious. It works. It solves my deepest problem. And I can be honest about how bad I really am and how bad the things are that I've done. I can be honest about that. And I've got a solution for it. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only solution. Let's look at it. We'll see how the gospel is working out in the Old Testament. The gospel, of course, is an Old Testament concept. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the good news. He is ultimately the good news. But people were still operating with the same God. And He has the same character in Old and New Testament. We're going to see a gospel story this morning. These people have screwed up royally. They're under the judgment of God. There seems to be no answer. And then look with me at chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel, here, now notice the first two words, and Samuel. Samuel's been absent for about three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Now Samuel shows up again. Samuel hears God, God hears Samuel. Samuel is a prophet, Samuel is a judge. Samuel's a mediator for us. God provides him. Remember how God provided him in the first place, through a a longing wife to have a child, and she made a deal to give Samuel over to be a priest. That's how we got Samuel in the first place. God's at work to give us what we need. Here's Samuel, and now we're going to see what happens. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, 
If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as, uh, as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered the territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. Okay, let's notice in verses uh, 3 through 17, actually, that God graciously leads us. God graciously leads us, verses 3 through 17. It is God who's going to solve this problem for us. We're going to see in this chapter that we're very much engaged. There are obligations upon us as followers of the living God. But God is the one who raises up Samuel. God is the one who moves upon our hearts. God is the one who takes over for us. God is the one who then calls us into battle. God is the one to be remembered. It's all about God. And God graciously leads us even in the midst of our worst times. And I know in a room this size, some of you probably are feeling right now, I've got to be in the most difficult time of my life. Or I'm really in tough times. And if you are, just realize we are getting an answer in God's Word today for how He graciously leads us even through our most difficult times. Notice, first of all, that He leads us to return to the Lord. God graciously leads us to return to Himself. Samuel came with this good news. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, What do you mean if you're returning to the Lord? In most of the religions of the world, if you turn your back on the Lord, that's it. 
But here the Lord, the Lord who really is, who really exists, this Lord tells us we can come back to Him. We can be restored. So Samuel gets up with hope. He's saying, look, if you'll return to the Lord, then do these things. Oh, there's a way back, yes. But he says, return to the Lord with all your heart. You'll notice that in Deuteronomy, we were taught when we studied that book a few years ago, that God says, if you seek me, you will find me, if you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah quotes that very verse in Jeremiah 29, when the people are in exile, talk about a low moment, they're in exile in Babylon, in Iraq. And God says, if if you'll seek me with all your heart, you will find me. So gentlemen, here's the promise. If you, no matter what your circumstances, if you want to know the Lord's presence and His blessing in your life, seek Him with all your heart. Now what does that mean? Well, let's look and see. Number one, it means to forsake our idols. Forsake our idols. He says, if you would seek the, return to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. Now look back with me at verse 2 again and see what Israel was doing before Samuel said this. Israel was lamenting after the Lord. Israel was weeping and crying. They were very sorry for their circumstances. They were sad. They seemed to be distressed. They had some religious idea of what God would want from them. They realized they hadn't done it. So they were lamenting after the Lord with tears at His altar. And oftentimes people today will come and they'll actually pray with tears. All the while, they have idols in their lives. And they're trying to worship two gods. And here's what Samuel is saying. He says, if you want to return to the Lord, the tears are great. The sorrow is wonderful. The lamenting, great. That's all good. But you're not going to get between here and a close relationship with the Lord with just tears and sorrow. Sorrow is part of repentance, but only a part. If you really want to get back to Him, then forsake the competitors, the other lovers in your life. You know, some years ago, I was working with a couple whose marriage was really distressed. And the reason it was distressed is because the man had decided to take up with another woman on occasion. So he had a nice little deal going in his mind. He had his, he had his wife at home who was faithful to him and took care of the kids and cleaned the house and supported him and all that. And then when he wanted to have a little romantic fling, a little few sexual pleasures, he'd go over here to his mistress. Well, this all came out in the open, at least to them, and they brought it to me, and we're talking about it. And so we talk about how God can put this marriage back together. And so when we're talking, of course it comes up about whether this man is ready to forsake this other relationship. And he said, well, I'm not really sure. (laughs) Now, gentlemen, you tell me, what were the odds of success in that counseling session? This woman's looking at him like, (laughs) and I'm looking at him like, you've got to be the worst idiot on the face of the planet. You're here in this session to try to reconcile this relationship. And you want to be a little bit unsure about whether you're going to forsake your other lover. Are you nuts? Are you totally insane? You ought to be on your face begging for forgiveness. Promise you'll never do that before. You know, I, you know so I just say to her, uh, Sister, can you, can you just go run a few errands in town? He and I have some things to talk about. And really, there's no sense in having any, talking to anybody until he and I get this thing straightened out. And you say, hey, look, pal, we're wasting our time. 
This, this is only more hurtful. This is only adding to the prospects for divorce to be in a meeting like this, and you're telling me you're not sure you're leaving your lover. I mean, we've got to have this straight. Now, come on, don't waste my time, your time, her time. And besides that, the living God is in this room with us. So let's get one thing straight. It's impossible for you to be reconciled to God and be close to Him and enjoy His intimacy while you've got this lover on the side. Who's your lover? What's your name? Who is it that you just like to go visit every once in a while? Just play around with her just a little bit. Oh, she's so much fun. She's cute, you know. And she's a little younger than your wife. And she just seems to be frisky, and she, she thinks you're wonderful. Uh-huh. Yeah, until you leave your wife and marry her, and then you'll find out how wonderful she is. Uh-huh. Yeah, but she's, she's wonderful, isn't she? She tells you you're wonderful. Yeah, just, I don't, I don't want to be married to her. I just want to enjoy something again in life. You know, and after all, don't I deserve that? Hell no, you don't deserve it. tell you what you deserve. No, I won't. I think I just did. <laughs> so here's what, here's what Samuel is saying. Cut the baloney. You want to draw near to the Lord? Forsake your lovers. The greed, the lust, the pornography, the ambition, the backbiting, putting people down, forsaking the poor. Get rid of all of those idols in your life. Now come. And your tears mean something because your tears are leading you to full devotion to your real spouse in your, in your relationship. And God is your spouse. He's your heavenly bridegroom. And you find the same thing with Joshua. I've mentioned the text here in Joshua 24. Joshua gets them out across the river now into the Holy Land. He says, look, the God of the Ammonites is over here. The God of the Amorites is over here. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose. Make a choice. Don't give me your tears and all this baloney about how sad you are. And really, your sadness is just self-pity. You know, God doesn't love me. That's what your sadness is all about until you forsake your idol. Then we know that your sadness is because you have besmirched the name of God. And you have grieved the one who made you and redeemed you. Now we know what your tears are all about. It's sorrow for His name for taking away from His glory instead of just sorrow, sorrow that your life isn't going well. And that's the big difference. Now, notice, secondly, not only do we forsake our idols, but we focus on the Lord. He says, and direct your heart to the Lord, Yahweh, and serve Him only. Now, you have to uh, recognize that the people had been brought up, uh, you know, those who were worshiping these gods, they were being brought up in a Philistine environment. We saw last time how the Philistines got their gods. They basically took their gods from other people. They would defeat the people and then bring the gods into their temples. So Dagon was a really somebody else's god. They worshipped Baal and Ashtaroth. Those were Canaanite gods. So, the, but the deal with, with Canaanite gods is that they're not jealous. In other words, you can have multiple lovers. And that's the reason that when you went to Canaanite worship, you would engage the prostitutes. It was like a sacrament because the gods, they're fickle, they're capricious, they might be good to you today, might be good to you tomorrow. They're open to manipulation. If you flatter them or give them something or feed them a little food, they might do something good for you. So you're constantly working the gods and all of them. So no god really has the right to say, you got to worship me and no other gods. 
I mean, if you worship the, the rain god, what, what about the soil god? If you worship the sun god, what about the moon god? I mean, you've got to have everybody on your side. So you've got to have multiple lovers. And that's the reason that in Canaanite sexuality, you can have multiple physical lovers because your sexuality reveals your theology. And that's the reason that in Christian uh, sexuality, we're faithful to one. If we're engaged in sexual practice at all, it's faithful to one. Why? Because our sexuality reveals our theology, which is God is faithful, and we're faithful to Him, one God. So unlike the pagan gods, the true God of the Bible is a jealous God. And Samuel is saying, you've got to focus on the Lord, and you've got to serve Him only, only, only. Now, I don't know of much that could be more relevant for today. Here's what I find so many people in this community say, that we need to build interfaith relations, interfaith and no faith, in such a way that we tolerate each other and each other's religions. And when we do that, we'll advance the cause of all society. And the real problem is those narrow-minded evangelicals who actually think that their way is the only way. How could anybody be so arrogant as to think their God's the only God, their way's the only way? What we need is to be tolerant of everybody and assume that, yeah, you, you like your religion, you like your God. Well, I happen to like mine too. You think yours is the best in the whole universe. Well, I think mine is the best in the universe. And who are you to say that mine is not? Now, that's the general environment in which we're all living. And it's going more and more in that direction. Here's the big problem. The Bible, which says that our God is a jealous God. He is the only true living God. That's what He says in His Word. And He does not appreciate whatsoever anybody suggesting that there is actually another God that exists. And if there were, that He is anywhere near a parallel contender. He has no second... There is no second God. There is no contender. Now, that's no excuse for arrogance. And it's also no excuse for intolerance. But let's remember the definition of tolerance. Tolerance is loving someone, serving someone, and including someone, even though I disagree at the core of my being with their theological convictions. That's tolerance. The way tolerance is being defined today is that all views have equal claims to truth. That's not tolerance, that's pluralism. Let's make a distinction between the two. So tolerance is recognizing that people are making claims to exclusivity. And for Christians, that's because the Bible makes a claim of exclusivity and says, furthermore, the God who is, is a very jealous God and doesn't appreciate it being put into a pantheon with other gods like the, the flags of the United Nations. He doesn't want his flag along with the other flags. There's only one flag when it comes to religion. That's the Lord. Now, if folks think that you're being intolerant because you believe that, that really is their problem. They've, they've defined you out of existence. It's not because the Bible has defined you out. They've done it. So one of our tasks, of course, is to go out and, and beg for the difference between tolerance and pluralism. So to, real tolerance is allowing Christians to claim what they claim, allowing Jews to claim what they claim, and Buddhists and Muslims and all the rest, and the seculars, claim what you want to claim, and then let's be tolerant with each other. But here's the claim. 
The claim is there's only one God. And He doesn't want you to have anything to do with the other gods. And He wants you to proclaim Him as the one true and living God. That's what Samuel the preacher, the judge, the prophet is saying to the people of Israel. Forsake your other idols. And forsake your pluralism. That you thought that you could hold on to Jesus Christ as one way. That there's only one God and we're all just seeking the same God in multiple ways. Wrong. There's one God and there's one way through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible consistently makes that claim. And so no matter what the dominant culture is saying, let me tell you about the dominant culture. The dominant culture, apart from Jesus Christ, is not going to survive. It's going to come to an end. Do you know who's going to endure? It's those people, those little people, those little poor people, those little poor minoritarian minoritarian people who made a simple claim that God is the one true and living God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has laid down His life for my sins and I trust Him. Now there you have it. Forsake everything else that competes with that. That's what Samuel's saying. Focus on the Lord. Thirdly, trust His deliverance. Because then Samuel says, if you do this, He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now you say, you know, I've got some Philistines got their hands around my neck. I've got some wicked competitors in my business. They're lying, cheating, and stealing and taking my customers from them. So I'm glad to hear this. All I've got to do is forsake my idols, focus on the Lord, and He'll deliver me out of the hand of the Philistines. That's good. Well, you and I know very well it doesn't always work that way, does it? What's the problem with that? The problem is your time frame. Yes, give Him enough time. How much is enough time? How about eternity? Give Him time. He's going to deal with everybody who's been corrupt, everybody who's undermined you because you followed Jesus. Everybody's going to be dealt with. So, yes, He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. What you'll find in this life is that there's a spiritual reality that He delivers you from the grip of the evil one himself. You find a new freedom to be who you were made to be, to do what you were made to do, to bear fruit in His kingdom the way that He intends you to, even if it costs you your life. And then one day when Jesus comes back, your body comes roaring out of the grave and you'll find that even physically you've been delivered from the hand of the Philistines. That's what Samuel's promising. Now in this case, in the Old Testament, we have a theocracy. So the church and the state are coterminous. They have the same boundaries, the same people. And promises are made to deliver them from their physical enemies because they are physically on the holy land, the land of God, with the people of God, with the promises of God. Now that will only happen again when Jesus comes back with the new Jerusalem out of heaven. We'll have a renewed theocracy. In the Old Testament, we see how God works when He has physical, sacred presence uh, with the people in their land. And He will judge the Philistines. Then He says to them, Confess your sins. So the people of Israel, look what they did. They put away the Baals and the Asheroth. And Asheroth is just plural for Asherah. So it's the Baals and the Asherahs. And they served the Lord only. They did it. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. This is called revival. So, gentlemen, if you will forsake all others, you will focus on the Lord and Him alone. 
then you have every right to expect that God will now revive your heart and give you His fullness as you seek Him. Because Jesus said, Ask and you will see. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And He says, You evil fathers know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So you've forsaken the idols. You're trusting Him alone and you're asking Him to fill you with His Spirit. He is not an Indian giver. He doesn't hold back. He'll give you what He's promised. So here it is. They confess their sins. Now, I've put here the definition of repentance because this is really what's going on. It's genuine repentance. And I've given you a definition here from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that I want to look at with you for just a moment. Last week, after our session, one of you asked a really good question. Because we were talking about last week, you remember, how we often just go to the Lord to get stuff and use Him like a vending machine or, or a mascot. And one of you said, well, does this suggest then that we really shouldn't ever ask God for anything in this life for us personally? I said, oh, no, 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 no. And I said, I'm so glad you asked. I'm going to answer that question next week. It's the way in which you ask. Now, <clears throat> look at the way they were working in previous chapters. They were just trying to use God's furniture... It's like they they took the chalice and the patent off the communion table and they take it out to battle, just using his furniture to try to get their way. They never really sought the Lord. And they just wanted what they wanted. And they wanted what they wanted without wanting God. But look at this. They are seeking the Lord. They want Him. And then whether I live or I die, I've got Him. I've got what I want. Now, does that keep me from praying that I'll be delivered from the Philistines? No, I pray that. Does that keep me from praying that my child's going to pass his exam? No, I pray for that. But I am also prepared to receive whatever answer he gives me and trust him with that answer, that what he gives me is good for me. I mean, take what happened in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Yeah, disaster. We got rid of a corrupt priesthood. That's what we got rid of through that disaster. God is being good. And sometimes in the short run, we don't figure it out. But if we're praying in the right way, yes, we're asking with limited knowledge and mixed motives. And because of that, we're ultimately trusting Him with the outcome. So that means we're coming to Him repentantly. We're not coming to Him as fellow gods, as colleagues in the heavenlies. We're coming as mendicants, as servants, as beggars, and as sons who don't deserve anything and trust our Father to lead our lives. That's the way in which we pray and ask for daily mercies. So you ask, have I ever prayed that some team would win? Of course I have. (laughs) Did they always win? Of course not. Uh, Is it always good? Of course. Because I trust the Lord with whatever outcome that He gives. So let's look at repentance, and here's what it is. First of all, it's a gift. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. It's a gift. Secondly, it's profound, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, is profound. He has a sense of his sin, his original sin and his actual sin. His sin in Adam and Eve, so that by nature he's corrupt, and he also realizes and acknowledges that he practices sin quite regularly. So he has a true sense of his sin. He also realizes, in a true sense of sin, that the sin is not ultimately against any other human being. It is, but it's ultimately against God. That's a true sense of sin. That I am suffused with sin and that it's a personal offense against God. 
That's the second thing. He has a profound sense of the sin. Thirdly, notice that it is gracious. It is with an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. In other words, when I'm turning, if I'm walking this way towards sin, I can't just turn over and you leave. I can turn over and you leave, but it's, it's going to just take me in some other direction. But when I turn from sin, I'm turning toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because I've looked over my shoulder and I've beheld His beauty and His grace and His truthfulness, His goodness, and I've heard His invitation. And I see that He's merciful. So that's drawing me away from my idols. That's the only way you're delivered from idols is that you meet Christ and you see that He is greater than all the idols you could create. What's the problem with adultery? Is that you've decided some woman is better than your wife. Or in the case of a Christian, you've decided that woman is better than Christ. And how do you get delivered? You turn to Christ and realize He has all you want and need. And so you turn your back on that relationship. That's how repentance works. It is with an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Fourthly, it is with grief and hatred of sin. So it's right to weep. It's right to lament. But over the fact that your sin has grieved the Lord. So your grievance is Christ-centered, not me-centered. So that when you rise up from your prayer of confession, you're not still beating your breast and trying to kill yourself. You're full of joy because you realize that Christ in His mercy has taken your sin away from you. And your, your relationship being restored through repentance, you're no longer grieving over a strained relationship. It's been healed and intimacy has been restored. Fifthly, notice in repentance that it is a true turning from it, that is sin, unto God. So repentance is not just being sorry for sin. Repentance is not just weeping, it's actually turning, it's making a change. The Hebrew word for repentance is shuv, which just means to turn. So there's an actual change in practice. That's what repentance is, and repentance is essential for salvation. We're saved through faith alone, but not through a faith that is alone. Repentance, a faith is always accompanied with true repentance. True faith always includes True repentance. For example, if I want to give you a quarter and I say, oh, what do you want, heads or tails? You say, what do you mean? Okay. How do I get heads without tails? That's the question. How do you get faith without repentance? You don't. It's two sides of the same coin. So I'm turning, actively turning from my sin as I trust in Jesus Christ. So repentance is always believing repentance and faith is always repentant faith. Otherwise, they're spurious, they're specious, they're not real. It's a fake repentance if it's not turning toward Christ. It's a fake faith if it's not a repentant faith. You get the point. So here this is what Samuel is saying. Then sixthly and lastly notice that real repentance is with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. There's a new obedience. There's a plan for obedience. So, for example... I'm over here, I have this nice mistress that I've got, and I say, honey, I'm going to have to forsake you and got to go back to my, go, go back to my wife. So, <clears throat> see you see later. I mean, next week maybe. And back over here. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I remember one of our friends has a little girl, Jamie Beth. She's now, you know, in her 40s. But when she was about uh, seven years old in the second grade, she had a little boy. He was the naughty boy in class. 
You know, some really nice girls like naughty boys. You all have noticed this because you married those nice girls, you naughty boys. And sometimes the girls like naughty boys, but this naughty boy sent her a little note in the second grade and said, will you be my girlfriend? And she wrote back and said, you've been a bad boy and I won't be your girlfriend, but call me on Thursday. <laughs> you know, and that's the way we sometimes deal with our sin, I'll call you on Thursday. What you, here's what you do. Real repentance is a turning and a burning of bridges. You burn the bridges. You leave no provision for the flesh. You don't, you don't leave a way back. You've got to destroy those ways back. And now I'm fully engaged in this direction only. That's real repentance. Now this definition I think is a marvelous description of what happens to a really converted man that he, his whole direction is changed. And that's what repentance is. And that is what's going on with Samuel. Get rid of your idols. Let's seek the Lord alone. And let's confess Him alone as the only God among all the gods. And they're all out there. All the religions are there. They're all in Memphis, every one of them. And they're all claiming that you treat them as equal accesses to God. And Samuel's saying no. Seek, focus on the Lord alone, get rid of your idols, then come and be revived. Confess your sin, enter into repentance, and the Lord will deliver you from your sin. I put there a little poem uh, from a hymn that you can look at later. Now secondly, as we look at verses 7 through 11, the Lord leads us to rely upon the Lord. First of all, we ask for deliverance. And you notice they say here to Samuel, Samuel, please cry out to the Lord our God for us. Because... Samuel heard the Lord, and the Lord hears Samuel. And they wanted Samuel to pray for them. Uh, and here, what they're acknowledging, gentlemen, is their helplessness. And we really are helpless. And when, when we're helpless, we go to our brothers and we ask them to pray for us. There's some people in this room who have a solid ministry of prayer built upon a genuine Christian life. I want them praying for me. And I ask them to pray for me. And you need to ask them to pray for you. Why? Because I realize I'm helpless. That these Philistines, once they get their hands around my neck, I'm toast. Uh, unless somebody takes up for me. And I need God's help. And I need somebody to pray for me. And that's exactly what God provides. He provides a mediator who will pray for Israel. Now, of course, we know ultimately who's the great mediator. It's the Lord Jesus Himself. And I have to say, nothing's more comforting to me than to know that Jesus Christ right now at the right hand of God is interceding and praying for us. How encouraging is that? Yes, we're to pray. But we can go to our mediator and ask him to pray. Jesus, cry out for Israel. Cry out for us. We are in need. We can't defend ourselves. And you see here the readiness of a God-appointed mediator to pray. And we're told in, in uh, verse 9, Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. The Lord answers do you think the Lord's going to answer His own Son? You better believe it. Do you know what He's interceding for? For your glory. He is interceding for you for the Lord to take you through time and space, through this broken and fallen world, to end up to be as glorious as He is. That's what He's praying for. Do you think the Father is going to turn that prayer down? No way, Jose. How encouraging. And Ask Him to pray for you to get through this life gloriously, even with all the problems and disasters that befall us. Now notice in verse 10, then we can watch him work. And you find this over and again. I mean, in Exodus, Moses just says, 
Just stand still, you Israelites, and see the Lord at work as He divides the Red Sea and destroys all the Egyptians. And here, clearly, the same thing. We're just simply told that, that uh, God threw them into confusion. He thundered with a mighty sound. And, um, of course, in the uh, pagan religions of ancient times, uh, they, thought, they saw Baal as the god of the heavens bringing rain and lightning. So now if lightning is hitting around them, <laughs> they're saying, I don't think Baal's defending us very well. And it throws them into great confusion. They were also very superstitious. So this huge storm comes with lightning striking all around the uh, Philistines, and they're terrified. And they say, there's no God. Come on now, guys. God has gotten them together for a revival, and here's what happens. In their revival meeting, the Philistines see them all gathered up, and they say, this will be a great time to attack them because they're in religious fervor. They don't have, they're not armed. They're all together. They're defenseless. Perfect timing. So these wicked Philistines, they decide this is the moment to hit. It's kind of like the 1973 war when the Arabs decided to strike Israel when, when they were having uh, Rosh Hashanah. And, you know, one, it's the first day of the new year. It's a holy day and so on. And normally everything shut down, military included, and they attack in 1973 on Rosh Hashanah. That's kind of what's going on with the Philistines here. They're attacking on a religious holiday. But notice the answer is to cry out to the Lord. We weren't depending upon our arms in the first place. And God comes down with this lightning. Then notice thirdly, there is a battle you take up. You're not, just, you're not just watching the Lord. You're watching while you're engaged in His mission. In fact, that's the only way you can really watch His work is if you're engaged in His mission. If you want to see really how God's at work, go evangelize somebody and watch, watch them deal with the gospel. You'll see God at work. If you, want to, if you want to see God at work, go serve the poor in a soup kitchen. Help those who are distressed. You'll see God at work. And that's what he's saying here. We take up the battle, but it's a mopping up operation. The guys are already in dispersion. They're already terrified. You just now go slay them all. <laughs> so you're engaged in the battle, but you're not the one who, who did it. Do you think any of those Israelites came home and said, Honey, you can't believe what a great warrior I am. You know, many of those Philistines were terrified of me. You wouldn't believe how they went running when I just ran out of them and shouted at them. And all the while, lightning bolts were hitting around them saying, See what a great warrior I am. No, no Israelite was that stupid. God was doing the battle, but He moved His people into the battle. So we're in the battle. We're all called to it. We have to do it. We want to do it. But we never claim that we're the one who turned the trick. Now, look and see, verses 12 through 17, that God leads us also to remember His mercy, to remember the Lord's mercy. We sang that hymn a minute ago, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. And you've been singing that hymn for years, saying, what next? An Ebenezer. Uh, here you have it. Ebenezer means stone of help. Stone of help. So here Samuel says, look what God has done. Let's never forget it. Let's raise up a memorial. And right here on the stone, let's say in this very place, Ebenezer, let's call it Ebenezer, Ebenezer. And let's call it the place where God helped His people. How important is this? Well, number one, We've got to remember the Lord's mercy in our own lives in the past. And there are two aspects of your past in which you need to remember. Number one, what God has shown you in the Bible. He divided the Red Sea. 
He gave you manna uh, and water in the wilderness. He held back the Jordan. He defeated the Canaanites. He sent lightning on the Philistines. He's done all kinds of things to deliver His people. And then ultimately, of course, He gives us the Lord Jesus Christ who lives a perfect life, dies on Calvary's cross, and defeats the powers of the evil one. There's where our Philistines were finally and ultimately defeated. Right there at Calvary's cross. And then God raised Him up from the grave showing us that He has triumphed over death itself and has given that victory to us and raised Him up to the right hand of God so that now our intercessor is ruling and reigning over the entire cosmos. and He's coming back to gather us to Himself. Yes, we remember. Yes, we remember. We'll never forget what He's done for us in the Bible. And then you look back at your own personal history and you realize how God, even through your difficult times, was working with you to bring you to Himself. How He's been sanctifying you even through your difficult times. And you make a note of that and you remember it so that next time you're in difficult times, you can say, you know, the last time I was in difficult times, when I was going through them, I thought I'd been completely abandoned. But when I got out of them, I looked back and saw God's mighty hand even in my difficult times. You remember these things. It's our obligation. We remember the past and we remember the present. And in the present, the enemies are subdued, the borders are under control, and peace reigns in Israel. Now, I'll put a comparison here from Ralph Davis's commentary on 1 Samuel just to show. Look at chapter 4. You see that Israel struck down. They tried manipulation. And the result is Ichabod. Here, there's repentance and faith. The Philistines are struck down. And it's Ebenezer. That's the way you want life to go. Trust in the healing power of God. Now let's look at chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Okay, let's look and see what's happening. We quickly forget God. Here we go again. My stars, we just went through chapter 7. We just got the answer to recovery. And now you're thinking, boy, glad I've got that bad religion behind me. Sure, I'm glad I got all that sin behind me. Sure, I'm glad I'm not going to fail like that anymore. And here you do it again. You forget God. Why? Well, because first of all, forgetting begins with the greatest leaders, including Samuel. It's one thing to rear sons in a way that they don't fall in your steps. We don't have time to look at that. But if you look in First and Second Samuel, you'll see Eli had a problem with it. Samuel had a problem with it. David had a problem with it. Matter of fact, Jonathan, one of the all-stars in 1 and 2 Samuel, came from a very evil father. Go figure. We don't have time to look at all that about how you know, we fail in rearing sons. But for sure we can all see that if your son is corrupt, the last thing you do is use your power to put him in power because of family favorites and nepotism. And that's what Samuel does. He knew his sons were corrupt, and he still put him in power. Now he sent him all the way down south, miles and miles away from Shiloh, put him down in Beersheba, in the frontier. But he still empowered them. If your sons are corrupt, don't give them power to corrupt. Samuel does. And then notice it includes other leaders. Here the elders come and say, we want to be like all the nations. So what's the answer? Now that even Samuel, even the Billy Graham 
of, of our country has put corrupt sons in place, just like Eli did. Now what's the answer? Well, we better just revert to what all the nations do. Let's do it like they do it. Let's have a powerful king. Now Samuel warns them uh, about this. Um, and we're going to see in verses 6 through 22, we're not going to read them right now, I'm just going to walk through them, that God never forgets us. Even though we forget God, God never forgets us. First of all, He knows how rebellious we are. And He says to Samuel, you'll notice in verse 8, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, they're forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. God is simply saying, Look, I've been putting up with these people for a long time, Samuel. This is not about you. Samuel's really displeased that they want to take his dynasty away, remove his sons, and get themselves a king. Samuel's also displeased because God Himself is the only king of Israel. And so we don't need a human king because God is king. That's what a theocracy is. And so Samuel's displeased personally, and he's displeased theologically. And God says... Samuel, this is a perennial problem. I want you to listen to them. And here's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to warn them. So we are warned. When you go this route and you want to solve problems just like the nations do, those problems, are going to, those problems solutions are going to end up being your problems. So when you go the way of the world and try to fix things that way, that's going to be your problem. Don't you see it in the Middle East? We're going to help this group defeat this group, and then before you know it, the group we were helping becomes the chief terrorist. And that's the way it always is with evil. You come up with a pragmatic solution and then that one shoots you right in the rear end. When you don't work with God, when you're not trusting the Lord alone, you're always going to set up something that's going to undermine you later. I've seen this happen in men's lives over and over again. They get a short-term solution that's not really rooted in God's presence or God's Word and ends up unwinding about five years later. And He warns them, this king is going to give you conscription, taxation, enslavement, and entrapment. He'll take your sons and daughters. In fact, you see the word he will take six times in English here. It's actually four times in Hebrew, the word lakah. He will take your sons and daughters. He will take your daughters to be perfumers. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And then in verse 18, and then you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And if you look at 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you see the northern kingdom, 22 kings, not a one of them was righteous. Southern kingdom had a very few. Maybe less than a third of them were righteous. Just one king after another, and you're going to cry out and nothing's going to happen because you're making the decision. You chose a pragmatic, worldly way to solve your ultimate problem instead of really solving it in a Christ-centered manner. And then look at verses 19 and 20. We are warned, but then we refuse to listen. The people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. Is this not amazing? God raised up Samuel, this little boy, to be a faithful priest and a judge and a prophet. Samuel comes to them and shows them the way of repentance. They're healed in their relationship with God. They are restored in peace in their community. Things are working for them. And now Samuel tells them, gives them another piece of advice, and they look him right in the face and they say no. 
Is that not amazing? You are known not only by your counselors. Who did you choose to be your counselors and advisors? But you're known for whether you listen to them or not. Did you choose good counselors and do you listen to them? Let me tell you something. If you don't listen to them, they will not be your counselors very long. Good counselors normally don't waste their time. If you want a good counselor, you're going to learn to listen. These people did not listen to Samuel that the Lord had raised up for them. The one who had the word of God, who was listening to God, and God was listening to him. And they didn't listen to him. In Proverbs 12, 15, Solomon says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Then lastly, in verses 21 and 22, look at these verses. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. He remains faithful. Ladies ladies and gentlemen, He remains faithful. Even after we had sinned against Him, we had been revived, genuinely revived in the faith. We were enjoying His pleasure and intimacy. And then again, we look Him in the face and don't take His advice. He still doesn't leave us. This is an amazing passage. We beg for a king because we want to be like the other nations. God gives us a king, which sometimes He does to the wicked. He gives them what they want so that what they want will destroy them. As an act of judgment, He gives them what they want. But with His people, look at the complexity of His sovereign grace. He gives us what we want contrary to what the preacher tells us. And then he takes what we want and uses it for his own purposes to save us from our sin. Is this not an amazing God? Is this not grace beyond any grace you've ever heard in all your life? That he takes your stupidity and your rebellion and your bullheadedness, he takes all the decisions you make out of that framework And he takes these things that I've done that are just self-centered, selfish, self-assertive. He takes all that stuff and turns it into a redemptive plan. What God can do that? Only the one true and living God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens when Samuel says, okay, you can have a king? Of course, it turns out they get Saul and they realize what a mistake they've made. But what does that lead to? A new dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. They get David. And what happens when they get David? They get David's greater son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, which comes from this line, decided by God's decree, working through human sin and rebellion. This is amazing. Our whole redemptive plan is a result of God sovereignly and graciously using human mistakes and rebellion. And we get our Lord Jesus Christ, who finally comes. And now He rules over all the Philistines and settles all the peace as the Prince of Peace, and provides for us eternal righteousness. He brings us a new heavens and a new earth, so that one day we live in perfect felicity and joy. That's the great plan of God. And He does it because, go figure, He loves you, and He loves me. Let's pray. Father,
What a great plan of salvation you have worked for us. Thank you for the gift of repentance by which we can draw near to you and know you and enjoy you. And thank you for the confidence that we have that you'll not let our stubbornness uh, lead us into everlasting hell. But you'll even use our stubbornness and somehow work it into your redemptive plan so that we are the heirs of eternal life. You are so good to us. Help us now, Lord, to go into battle the Philistines today and with joy and confidence engage the battle knowing that our God has already won the victory. Help us to be in this mopping up operation with joy knowing what the end of the battle will lead to, the new heavens and the new earth. We make our prayer in the name of David's greater son, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Bless you, gents.